Welcome to the Forest Overstory podcast. This podcast explores forest stewardship in the Pacific Northwest, helping landowners and professionals gain new insights and information in the field of forest management. The Forest Overstory is a product of the Washington State University Extension Forestry Program and is supported by the Washington Department of Natural Resources and the Society of American Foresters. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Forest Overstory podcast. My name is Kevin Zobrist and I'm a professor and extension forester with Washington State University. And I'm here with my co-host and fellow WSU extension forester, Patrick Schultz. We have a very interesting episode lined up for you here as we will be talking about one of the hottest topics in forestry right now, which is common mycorrhizal networks, also known as the wood wide web. Some pretty profound claims have been made that could change our understanding of how forests and nature work. And these claims have been featured in videos and best-selling books and are said to be supported by scientific research. But how well are these claims supported in research data? What does the research support? What does it not support? And what needs further study before we can draw conclusions? And where is the research headed to help us better understand these things? We'll be exploring all of this today. Patrick, tell us about our guests. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for the intro. I agree. This is uh, a very exciting episode, and we have a lot to get into. All of the things you mentioned uh, are really important topics right now, and everybody's thinking about them. And we have some very illustrious guests uh, to help us with that. We're on the line with uh, Justine Kars with the University of Alberta, Melanie Jones with the University of British Columbia, and Jason Hooksema from the University of Mississippi. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hello. It's a good crowd with a lot of brain power, and uh, I'm very excited to dig into all of that. So um, clearly, you all have academic backgrounds, um, but I wonder if just briefly, we could go around the horn and have you tell us a little bit about your current roles at your respective institutions um, and your, your background, kind of what you're usually studying. Uh, Justine, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So first, um, I'm really excited to be on the show. Thanks so much for having us on. Uh, I am an associate professor at the University of Alberta in the Department of Renewable Resources. And my focus is on um, understanding the mycorrhizal ecology of forests. And I've been working on this topic since my PhD. And I actually did my PhD with Melanie, who is also on today. And so that started looking at mycorrhizas and forests, and that's pretty much the focus of my research program, dabbling kind of in different topics here and there, uh, which brings me up to today. Nice. Uh, Melanie, do you want to go next? Sure. Hi. Um, I'm a professor in the biology department at the University of British Columbia's Okanagan campus. And um, I like to call myself an, an ecophysiologist who studies uh, ectomycorrhizal symbioses. So I've been looking at nutrient movement in the ectomycorrhizal trees for about 40 years. And I've been involved in studying common mycorrhizal networks for about 30, I would say. 
And the, another major um, aspect of my research program that's relevant to your listeners is a lot of my focus has been on the effects of different kinds of silviculture on ectomycorrhizal fungal communities in forest soils and on roots. Right, so that's a real wealth of experience. That's very exciting. Um, Jason, do you want to finish this off? Yeah, hello. Um, Jason Hooksema. I'm a professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Mississippi, and I'm generally interested in interactions among species and their ecological consequences and their evolutionary dynamics. And uh, I've mostly focused for, these, uh, for my research uh, on mycorrhizal interactions between trees and ectomycorrhizal fungi, but I've also been involved in synthesis projects that go across uh, also uh, a wide diversity of other kinds of mycorrhizal interactions. Well, a warm welcome to all three of you. We're so glad to have you on today and are excited to explore these topics. So the first question for you, we'll start with something really basic, which is what are mycorrhiza and what do they do for plants and forests? I can start. <laughs> so, well, yeah, we can start off easy. So what is a mycorrhiza? So a mycorrhiza is an association between um, roots of plants and mycorrhizal fungi. And there are different groups of fungi that form these associations. So the two most common groups are what we call ectomycorrhizas. Melanie and Jason both mentioned them. And arbuscular mycorrhizas. So they different kind of in form and function. Um, and in the majority of plants, obviously including trees, they form these mycorrhizas. And what we know about them is that they're really important, um, as Jason alluded to and Melanie, in nutrient exchange. So the mycorrhizal fungi, they are great at taking up resources like phosphorus, nitrogen, water, and they pass those on to their plant partner in exchange for um, carbon. So uh, mostly in the form of sugars, some cases um, in fats. And so we typically regard it, regard them as a mutualism. Okay, well, now that we understand the basics of what is mycorrhiza? Can you tell us about this idea of the wood wide web and common mycorrhizal networks? So what's the difference and what is this all about? Sure. I'll start with this and then I'm going to turn it over to Melanie because Melanie has like a really nice long view of this. Um, so common mycorrhizal networks, these are formed when mycorrhizal fungi physically link the roots of uh, two or more different, or they could be the same, uh, individuals. So they could be different tree species or the same tree species. But the idea is, is that there's this physical below ground link formed by the hyphae um, joining these different plants. The wood wide web, uh, this is sort of a popularized term for it. I'll, I'll let Melanie um, describe how it started. Um, I would say so we typically in science will call them common mycorrhizal networks, um, but probably most of the public knows them as the wood wide web. So, but the wood wide web also is sort of a metaphor in terms of what I think is this idea of that all trees in a forest are connected below ground 
and they're sharing nutrients and resources. Um, so, so to me, it also kind of captures more than the common mycorrhizal network. And, and Melanie, she was involved in how this name came to be. So I'm going to let her describe that. Sure. Thanks, Justine. Yeah, the the term Wood Wide Web was first uh, coined by the editors of Nature. And it was when a um, really well-known paper by uh, Samard et al. in 1997, and I, I was an author on that, was published. It was one of the first really well-done field studies on um, below-ground movement of carbon between trees and potential roles for ectomycorrhizal fungi. And it was a cover story. So nature came up with this term wood wide web and splashed it on the cover. And I think they, at the time, this was 1997, so um, it was the time when the World Wide Web, the internet, was quite new. And so it was an interesting play on words. But as Justine said, it, it's really taken on a different meaning now. So can you tell us a little bit about how did these mycorrhizal networks compare with, say, root grafting networks? Oh, that's a good question. So, um, so the the common mycorrhizal networks. So, I'd say the biggest difference between root grafting is that the the links are of a totally different organism. So, those links are made by fungi um, versus root grafting. Obviously, it involves roots uh, attaching to one another. And root grafting, I know it can occur between trees of different species, but most likely trees of the same species. And common mycorrhizal networks, they are not necessarily uh, restricted to um, connecting trees or plants of the same species. It can also be connecting uh, trees of different species. I think what the big difference, though, or another big difference, though, also is that common mycorrhizal networks, so we know in the lab they can definitely form, we can see them, and there is evidence and we think that they probably form between different trees in the forest but we have I think a much poorer understanding of the functional consequences of common mycorrhizal networks than say root grafts like there's just a whole lot that we don't know about common mycorrhizal networks not to say we have everything worked out with root grafts but um, I think it's just an easier to understand system because it's still uh, tree roots grafting with tree roots. So at least you're dealing with the same organism forming the links, whereas CMNs, it's different because now you have to consider the fungi. And these fungi, which is, I think, you know, with the wood wide web, it often treats fungi just as these like passive conduits moving around information and resources under the direction of trees. But these are their own organisms. So they're also seeking um, to maximize their fitness they have own, their own interests, which won't necessarily align with the tree's interest. So I think that's another important difference. I just wanted to jump in and add something quickly, which is that um, a really common usage of the phrase mycorrhizal networks is also now to just refer to mycorrhizal fungi. So it's, it's and the presence of them on the roots of a tree. They, you know, the, the mycelium of the mycorrhizal fungus forms a, a web-like network in the soil. And 
what we found is that there's a lot of confusion about a common mycorrhizal network versus just mycorrhizal networks. Uh, so what we're really concerned with here and what the Wood Wide Web narrative is all about is these common mycorrhizal networks, these connections between trees and forests. That's what we analyzed uh, in our paper. Uh, and that's what these really popular claims are about. Um, so uh, I just wanted to clarify that for the listeners right up front. We're not just talking about uh, mycorrhizal fungi. It's those connections. Yeah, thanks, Chase. I think that's really important because, um, and as we'll, we'll kind of get into, um, this stuff really bleeds, like the lines really blur when it starts to escape into pop culture. And um, I kind of want to talk about that quickly before we get into the meat of this podcast, which is really to talk about a paper that you guys published recently. Um, but I, I'm just curious um, to, from really all three of you, you know, why do you think that it's having such a moment right now? We talked about how there's some really popular books out there, The Hidden Life of Trees, Finding the Mother Tree. This is even mentioned in an episode of the TV show Ted Lasso. Uh, which is a show that I watch and I, I, and I caught it and I just was like, wow, people are really excited about this. This is really catching on. And I'm just curious from y'all, what do you think is behind that? That's a good question. Um, it seems like fungi are really having a moment. <laughs> yeah. Like not, you know, not just with the wood wide web, but just, it's just, they're everywhere right now. And of course, I mean, uh, probably many of your viewers. I also watched it too, The Last of Us. I loved it. Um, but yeah, so fungi are just really having a moment. And why now? Um, I, I'm not sure. Like with ideas about the wood wide web, I think it could be that, you know, it, it does offer this different way of being, of being. So there's a lot more focus on sharing and caring um, interactions, harmony, kind of those sorts of topics. And it might just be at a time where many people need to hear or want to tap into those themes. You know, it's such a good question. And as someone who researches in that area, I, I, I don't know really why it's become so huge, but uh, maybe Melanie and Jason have something to say about it. Well, I think the the other thing is that all of this exploded uh, really around the time of COVID. And I think we were all stuck in our houses by ourselves. And this was a, a story that is, was really talking about connections. And it was a, a happy story, a heartwarming story. And it might also have had to do with um, pe more people getting out in nature at that time too because it was the one safe place we could all be and so I wonder if it was part of that that there was just a lot of sadness a lot of uh, bad news and this was a, a good news story yeah I agree with all of that I would just add that I think it's also due to some really effective communication and and messaging from a few uh, scientists and popular writers. Uh, you know, there, there have been really popular books and short videos and Ted talks 
that have been published in recent years, and all of those have uh, really been well done. You know, we are going to discuss our disagreements with some of that messaging, but uh, there's no arguing that the messaging has been really effective. <laughs> that's a that's a really great point, Jason. Like taken at at its value from a messaging perspective, this is a massive success story about uh, sort of delivering science science to the masses. And you know, maybe we can draw some lessons from that and doing that effectively. Certainly, having something as catchy as the Wood Wide Web helps. Um, I was thinking about that earlier today. It's just that is a really great marketing scheme, even though maybe that wasn't its necessarily intent. Um, but yeah, this is a, it was it was really well messaged. But as you said, uh, you know, maybe a little too effectively, or at least maybe prematurely, and and that's really what we're going to get into today is a paper that the three of you published um, discussing you know what scientific evidence there actually is towards several claims around what uh, common mycorrhizal networks or the wood wide web um, actually does, uh, how widespread it actually is, um, and, and some of the claim, other claims that have been, you know, peppered in through some of these books and videos and TV shows, as we said. So I, I want to, you know, dig into those claims, because that's how the paper structured. Uh, and, and you structure it really well and very clearly. And I want to make sure we share that with the audience. We'll post those links. Um, but before we dig through those, I thought it would be good to talk about the impetus of this. What were the conversations you all were having before you decided to dig into this and uh, do a serious analysis of what evidence was there? Yeah, um, I can start with that. So uh, for me, um, I started, I honestly, I hadn't really uh, paid much attention to what was going on in the popular media. And I was asked to appear in a, in a nature documentary. And they sent me just, you know, a very loose script. And I was surprised by some of the things that they wanted me to talk about. And, you know, this idea, you know, alarm calls moving through the forest, through through mycorrhizal networks other things. And I just, I didn't remember reading uh, the studies to support these claims. And so my first reaction was, uh, I must be missing something. And so I reached out to Melanie and, you know, as I was preparing for this documentary to talk about some of these, like what's going on in studies of common mycorrhizal networks. I feel like I'm missing a lot judging like when I when I read this script. So that was kind of the first thing. And then another small thing that really pushed me over, um, once I realized that I didn't think some of these claims were supported by evidence is my son came home and in science class, they had learned that trees talk to each other through common mycorrhizal networks. And at that point, it really, it it made me realize just how widespread these popular claims had become. And it made me very concerned that kids were learning about this in school when at that point, I, I really was not seeing the evidence for these claims. And so, um, so I had reached out to Melanie and Jason and I also connected. I'll, I'll let them um, talk about how they got into it. <laughs> Well, as, as Justine said, she contacted me and it, it made me reflect a bit on what I had been seeing in the scientific literature. 
And having been involved in, in some of the really early, not the really early studies, but the studies, say, from the late 90s onward, I had become aware that they were not always cited properly, that when people referred to them in the scientific literature these days, they tended to extrapolate some of the findings or they tended to refer to results that weren't quite significantly different as if they were significantly different. And this is something that had always bothered me and I didn't really know what to do about it. But when when Justine came forward and, and proposed the idea of, um, of writing this paper, I was all in because of that. I wanted the scientific community to realize um, what the basis of the claims was or wasn't. So, yeah, for me, it was a similar process of kind of becoming aware uh, on one hand of how popular these narratives were uh, were becoming in the media, but also encountering um, uh, a contrast with my my own understanding of the literature and wondering if I was missing something. Uh, for me, I w- it was a moment when I was asked to comment for uh, a high-profile newspaper article, and I it it made me realize that um, uh, in an- to answer the questions, uh, I really needed to get up more up to date on the recent literature because the kinds of claims that were being made didn't match with my understanding. I had done a review of uh, a lot of this literature in 2015, uh, but had not um, done a good enough job of keeping up with the recent paper. So I thought it was possible I had missed something. And so, uh, you know, and simultaneously, it was really striking me how widespread uh, these stories were in the po- were becoming in the popular media. It was everywhere, on the radio, on podcasts, on YouTube. And then uh, you mentioned Ted Lasso earlier. I think the tipping point for me was uh, watching Ted Lasso and seeing it pop up there. And, and it really hit me how, how popular these claims were and how uh, they didn't match up with um, my understanding of the literature either. And it made me realize I needed to dive really deeply into it. Um, and Justine and I had worked together before. She was a postdoc uh, at the University of Mississippi in my lab, and we we had talked about um, uh, staying in touch uh, to work on joint projects. And uh, I think Justine reached out, if I remember correctly, and it turns out we had both begun working on uh, a synthesis on this stuff uh, in response to similar uh, reactions. Um, but coming at it from a different perspective and a different approaches. And so we decided to jointly, the three of us, put our approaches together into this project. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking back to that uh, conversation, Jason. I think it was something like you saying to me, have you seen these claims in the popular media? <laughs> so definitely, uh, it made me start paying attention. Like, what what is going on out there? Yeah. So Justine, whatever happened then with your documentary interview? Did you go through with that? And then Jason, maybe you can follow that with what happened with your newspaper quote. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So I went ahead with it, um, and there was a lot of negotiating um, in the script in terms of what I felt comfortable saying, and I think what maybe they initially hoped for. And so I I would say it's a very uh, tempered down version of 
what was initially passed to me. Um, and I, I think it was eye-opening for, for both of us, like for the director, for myself, just in terms of like, whoa, this story. Uh, but, you know, it's balancing. It's also balancing other people's viewpoints on it, which I appreciate that they were trying to do. Um, and, and I was probably a little bit of, out, of an outlier in that documentary in trying to really put the brakes on a lot of stuff. So um, I haven't, I haven't actually seen the, the final edit, so I'm not hundred percent sure what's going to happen with it. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. Now for me, um, I ended up doing what I could to dig in and get up to date in time for uh, providing some quotes on a very short deadline for that New York times article. And, now, that article is published now, and so uh, readers can find it. Um, I ended up uh, making some very circumspect statements, uh, feeling like uh, I don't know enough to make really strong statements, but I know enough that I don't feel strong supporting uh, really strongly uh, uh, the narratives in that article either. So if you read it, you'll see that my statements in that article are pretty neutral. And um, I was really at that point thinking, okay, I'm going to need to make a major effort to get up to date so that next time this happens, I'll be better prepared. It sounds like maybe the popular press outlets are really trying to drive the story in terms of maybe wanting to sell books, get clicks, get viewers, as opposed to the science actually driving the narrative. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that maybe is happening. Um, just it really sort of getting on the, the bandwagon. And um, as the story explodes and you see more and more interviews and people thinking, oh, well, we need to uh, talk about this topic because it's really timely and in the news. And it, again, it's a good news story. But I think you can see some some contrasts with some of the outlets that are a little bit more science-minded. Although even then, I think one of the challenges with this area is that even for us, it it it's eval it's difficult to evaluate the methods that are being used. And if people go in and read our paper, they'll see that we spend a lot of time talking about nitty gritty of the methods because these are uh, these mic these um, mycorrhizal networks you can't really see them in the forest and hyphae are microscopic and so working with them in the field is quite challenging and so what I'm trying to say about the the media is I think that the message came across as really having a strong scientific basis to it there's often references to you know experiments have been done on this or that. But I think it's really, I do not blame journalists for not realizing that the scientific um, support was not there. Because even for us, it, it took us a while of reading these papers before we really realized how many alternative explanations there could be for some of the results. And I think we'll get into that shortly. Uh, I agree, Melanie. And, and you know, in the in the case that I was mentioning, that, that example, you know, the journalist was reaching out to me to and to other uh, people in the field to get alternative opinions. And, you know, I, I take uh, 
responsibility for not being well enough prepared to answer that question. But it just also shows how difficult it is, even for scientists, to keep up uh, with the literature in some of these topics. We had to really dive in and make a concerted effort to prepare ourselves now to be able to answer these kinds of questions. That's a really interesting those are, those are really good points. It's hard to expect a journalist to be um, up to date on on everything in the same way you would expect a, an academic researcher. And um, yeah, as you said, it's it's difficult ourselves. So um, and and it took you guys doing your own analysis to really figure out where the research was lacking. So you know, it's hard to really blame anyone. It's it, it's something that happens a lot when research gets you know one. One study gets taken and someone makes a headline out of it. It's something that happens all the time. And I think as consumers, we have to be very careful um, about just taking it as, as fact right away, uh, especially since good science is replicated. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot today. But again, and I've, I'm, I'm preambling a lot to really digging into the media paper. But I think one really important thing um, to talk about, or at least just clarify ahead of getting into this, is that... Um, and this is something, Justine, I've heard you say in a, in a webinar I, I watched, that some of these papers that are being cited are, are your papers. You know, this is not a critique from the outside. This is a critique from the inside. Um, you know, these are, these are uh, studies that you, uh, many of, you know, you guys participated in or helped or had some involvement with and, and realized after the fact that there were um, potentially some, some f faults or loopholes, um, you know, ways that, uh, you know, the, the nutrients could have been transferred in, you know, otherwise than uh, common mycorrhizal networks. So I just wanted to, to clarify that. And, and Justine, if you have anything to add. Yeah. Uh, I think for all three of us, when we were reviewing past studies, which of course included some of our own because we actively researched this area as well. I think for each of us, there was a moment, I can describe my moment, uh, when we were reviewing one of my past studies on common mycorrhizal networks. And, um, and this was a study looking at the responses of seedlings to potentially being able to plug into these networks or not. And in the study system, um, so we were looking in forests that had been attacked by mountain pine beetle and most of the trees died and comparing uh, the role of common mycorrhizal networks in healthy stands versus uh, dead stands, the ones that we had high levels of tree mortality. And we initially ascribed the, um, the results to common mycorrhizal networks having either a good or bad effect on seedling responses. But then uh, later on, when I was talking with Melanie and Jason, Melanie pointed out to me that there was an increase in pathogens in those stands that had high levels of tree mortality. So what we were interpreting as a role of common mycorrhizal networks in terms of how the seedlings were responding could have actually been seedlings responding to pathogens. This is not written into the paper, and I had not thought about this at all, but it's a very good <laughs> and plausible alternative explanation. And so for me, it was that moment of like, yeah, I mean, everybody's thinking about soil pathogens a lot more than we were like 10 years ago in force, or that I was anyways. And so this was like an update 
to my knowledge bank of like, yeah, there are other things going on than we were just, I, sorry, I don't want to say we, I was so focused on what the common mycorrhizal network was doing in that study to the exclusion of other important factors. So for me, it was one of those moments. And of course, it's kind of, you know, to be honest, a little bit embarrassing and kind of humbling to have like two experts sitting there with you and then pointing out the like limitations and possible loopholes in your conclusions. So, yeah. <laughs> and and I can just say for for me, because this is part of what we have in the paper too, so it's probably worth saying, the 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 aha moment for me was when I realized that some of the experiments that I'd been involved in uh, with common mycorrhizal networks, they used an approach where seedlings were placed inside mesh bags in the out planted out in the field and the openings of the mesh were of different sizes so they'd be really small so that hyphae couldn't cross and the hyphae couldn't enter to form a CMN or they were bigger so that a CMN could form or there was nothing so that the roots and the hyphae could could interact and although Jason had thought about this and published on this before, I had not really thought about the fact that in the control treatment, which had a really small opening so that the CMN could not form, that the hyphae from the big tree couldn't enter and connect with the hyphae of the little tree, that the other thing that happens in that treatment is that the hyphae from the little seedling can't exit. And, you know, we always attribute the one of, one of the big benefits of having a seedling be mycorrhizal is that the hyphae can extend far beyond the root system and take up nutrients that are beyond any kind of nutrient depletion zone. And by restricting hyphae from going in, we were also restricting hyphae from going out. And therefore, these, these control seedlings might have been artificially smaller than they would have been if they had just been growing out on their own. And and so an increase in size with the bigger hole mesh might have had nothing to do with the CMN forming. It might have just been that the hyphae of that seedling could now escape and explore a larger volume of soil and take up water and nutrients from that larger volume. And I had that thought had not crossed my mind at the time we wrote these papers. And so it's not mentioned. We checked that they were root bound. The seedlings weren't root bound, but we didn't think about the fact that they could be, the hyphae could be pot bound inside those mesh bags. Well, this is really science at its best when scientists are willing to go back and critique and think of new explanations, alternative explanations, and how that might shape further research. Let's dive into some of these claims. You highlight three major claims that you look at in your paper. So first claim is that common mycorrhizal networks are widespread in forests. Now, what did you all conclude about that claim? Well, when we evaluated that claim, um, first of all, it is really difficult to study common mycorrhizal networks um, in the field. 
So, and this is because as soon as you dig in the soil, if you wanted to directly observe them, then of course you destroy the network. So it's it's next to impossible to use um, like a direct visual, visualize, visualization of these networks. So researchers use um, indirect methods. And so typically what's involved there is that research will, researchers can genotype the tree, they can genotype roots, and so they know um, which tree stem those roots belong to. And uh, they can also genotype the fungi colonizing those roots. And in one really exceptional example is when researchers, um, they they did use these techniques in a Douglas fir forest. So the trees were mostly all Douglas fir, so that made it easier. And the roots are colonized by this really distinct structure. So when you see it in the soil, you know it's a particular fungal species and then you can genotype it. And it's really important that we genotype the fungi because we need to know if they are the same or different individuals. So different species of fungi are not going to form, they are not going to form these links. It has to be uh, identical genotypes of a fungus. So the same individual can form these links. So that's why it's really important to genotype. Um, so this is a really great tool. And of course, you can keep track where you are in the forest so you know where you're sampling. And so what these represent is like a discrete snapshot of in this location, here is a fungal genotype. And maybe over here, 10 meters away, we find the same fungal genotype. And using those mapping techniques, then it's like basically connecting the dots. So then we might say, oh, okay, so then we're assuming that this fungal genotype then stretches, say, that 10 meters. But of course, we don't know that for sure. Like that genotype, that link could be broken at many places. So we don't know if it actually forms a continuous link. We don't have a good idea how long these links um, persist. And so what we do know, though, is that only five of these kinds of maps have been done worldwide. And so uh, four of them are in one particular forest type, so Douglas fir forest. And then there's the other one that is done in a Japanese pine forest. A couple of those maps, they're done at really, really fine spatial scales. So like uh, you take a sample here and then another sample 20 centimeters away. And if you're finding the same fungal genotype in those two samples, we would say that's good evidence that it's likely at a distance of less than 20 centimeters that it's probably a continuous fungal connection. But we just don't have a good idea of how many trees are involved. Um, are the fungal species, are they... Uh, do they form small patches? Do they form big patches? How long do they last? So we argued in the paper is that we just don't have enough information. We don't have enough of these maps to make any generalizations about how ubiquitous these CMNs are, um, their spatial structure, that kind of thing. But I do want to point out, though, that it's it's likely we don't doubt that these connections can form as i mentioned we see them in the lab and roots they grow really really close together and many of mycorrhizal fungi they can form associations with different tree species so in all likelihood these connections do form but again we just don't have the data to really we would argue go much past that well one thing i would also add is that our analysis, first of all, really focused on trees and forests. It's important to, to note that because um, mycorrhizal network 
Studies have been performed in grasslands and other herbaceous plant communities. Also, it, there is good evidence that um, non-photosynthetic herbaceous plants in forests do form mycorrhizal networks with trees and and get uh, most or all of their nutrition, uh, including carbohydrates, from trees through these mycorrhizal networks. So these mycorrhizal networks are important for those what, what are called mycoheterotrophic plants. That's not what we were analyzing. The popular claims in the media uh, and the wood wide web attention has all been focused on trees in forests communicating through these networks and benefiting each other through these these fungal networks so that was the focus of our uh synthesis yeah thanks that is um it really was fascinating to read the paper and think about the just the the disproportionate response when you think about uh justine i think in your webinar you mentioned just the amount of space that's been mapped compared to the total forest land, you know, in, in the world. And it's just microscopic. So we know so very, very little about this. Like you said, um, very likely that these exist. Well, we know that they exist, but how widespread is very difficult to prove. Mm -hmm. And and the what really got me that I just never thought about for whatever reason was, yeah, you know, these connections could be ephemeral. They could yeah. be sh short-lived and, and it could they can come and go over the over the course of time in a forest. And I just never really thought about that. Yeah, I think when we did the math in total, um, the maps make up about one hectare. And mm -hmm. then there is about 4 billion hectares of forest worldwide. So yeah, we just really know a very, very tiny slice of um, what these networks look like in forests. And and of course, I don't want to say that we need to, you know, map 50% of the forests worldwide or anything like right. that. But it's just, you know, it's just recognizing we just have very, very little data to make any sorts of generalizations about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so on to, to claim two, um, which digs a little more into this concept of sort of nutrient transfer. Um, the, the second claim that, that you guys kind of distilled was that resources are often transferred through CMNs and improve seedling performance. Um, what did you guys find when you dug into the research on this one? Um, I, I'm going to ask Melanie to address this one because uh, Melanie has already spoken about how she was involved in that first real groundbreaking study looking at nutrient transfer. So I, I'd like to hear from Melanie on this one. Okay. Okay. Um, so I would, when we looked at this question, um, we really looked for every study that we could find that had had investigated CMNs in forests. And they often, they tended to take sort of uh, look at one set of variables or another, which are captured in that claim too. One is about, is there any kind of resource movement? And often the most common one that was measured was carbon. Is our common mycorrhizal networks facilitating the movement of carbon from one tree to another tree or a big tree to a seedling? And then there was another group of studies that looked at whether or not there was any evidence that seedlings did better when they were connected, plugged into a CMN that was part uh, associated with a big tree. So 
our conclusions about the resource transfer were that there are quite a few alternative explanations for um, for movement of carbon from tree to tree being continuously through a hypha. And in particular, we can't rule out that the carbon is just moving through the soil. And so it's not going to move through the soil long distances, but it's very likely that it can, um, the carbon can be exuded from the, the roots or from the hyphae associated with one tree. We know that that happens all the time and then can be, uh, once it's out in the soil, can be taken up by hyphae or roots of other trees. And, um, and so there, there have been the, the experiments that look at that very often um, are using as a control. The, um, the, the experimental setup is such that there are ectomycorrhizal plants that can be connected by an ectomycorrhizal common mycorrhizal network and then in part of the same experiment there will be a tree that forms arbuscular mycorrhizae and those mycorrhizae are formed by totally different fungi and cannot plug in to the network so for example the the study that i was involved in right back at the beginning that nature study published in nature we had um paper birch, Douglas fir, which are both ectomycorrhizal, and then western red cedar, the thuya, that is arbuscular mycorrhizal. And um, what we found was that there was a lot more carbon picked up by the two ectomycorrhizal tree species when one or the other of them was labeled, but much less was picked up by the thuya. And so the initial conclusion from that study was that the carbon must be moving through this continuous common mycorrhizal network. But there's been papers that have been, that have been published since then showing that the density of hyphae of arbuscular mycorrhizal associations is much lower and they're not nearly as good at taking up root exudates. So the fact that there was much less carbon taken up from the soil um, that had come from the other plant by the thuya, the arbuscular mycorrhizal plant, we can't really use that as a good control. And so there's, that's just an example of some of the alternative explanations for why the carbon uh, could be taking other routes through the soil than just through the common mycorrhizal network. And maybe I'll just let somebody else talk about um, the studies that have looked at the seedling responses. Sure, I can mention uh, some of our conclusions about that. Um, so if you set aside some of these or all of these alternative explanations that Melanie and then earlier Justine um, talked about, these alternative explanations for outcomes of these experiments testing uh, the potential effects of mycorrhizal networks, um, what we see is that there's still a lot of variability in the outcomes of these experiments uh, in terms of how much of uh, resources are transferred, and especially whether and how much seedlings benefit from 
putatively being connected to mycorrhizal networks. So, uh, you know, there have been uh, across uh, all the papers published, there are more than 20 experiments that have been published uh, testing these questions. Um, and when we analyzed them, we looked at whether the authors measured benefits for seedling growth or survival in response to manipulation of the mycorrhizal network treatments. And we found that in most cases, uh, the seedlings either did worse or had a neutral response to uh, being connected potentially to these mycorrhizal networks. And in addition, uh, one nice thing about these experiments is that they they also allow the measurement or the estimation of not only mycorrhizal network connection effects, but also the potential effects of roots, of just the, the roots associated with big trees and how they might influence uh, seedlings growing near them. And uh, in most cases, those root effects were negative or, uh, and fairly strong and often outweighed any positive effects of mycorrhizal network benefits. Uh, so, and what we, uh, uh, ended up concluding was that it was about 20% of experiments only found positive effects of mycorrhizal networks that were not offset uh, by negative effects of roots. Um, I should say that this is a qualitative analysis looking at uh, kind of counting, you know, this experiment found a significant effect, this one did not. Um, a, a further approach to get into the details of that would be a formal meta-analysis, and I have a graduate student working on that uh, right now as a collaborative project in our lab. So we'll hopefully be able to say even more about the quantitative distribution. What I'm going to, what you know, to preview that, it's all over the map. These uh, uh, seedlings in these experiments sometimes benefit, they sometimes do not. They are sometimes hurt by, by being connected to these experiments if we set aside the caveats uh, discussed earlier. So to me, what this brings up is, is that the, the much more interesting question is, when might these mycorrhizal networks be beneficial to seed seedlings in forests and when might they not be? Uh, not just you know, a narrative about whether they are beneficial or not. Yeah, and I just I wanted to add something to um, that discussion is that, um, so it seems in most cases that, you know, there's there could be small amounts of resources transferred below ground. We're still not sure if they're moving through the common mycorrhizal network. Um, but to my knowledge, the other important piece missing is that we have no idea if this small amount of resource transfer has any effect on seedling performance, like survival or growth. Like there are there are really no studies that have put those two together in a convincing way to to show us that this little amount of carbon um, actually would influence a seedling success in a forest. And, and I think that's a really important part of this story that we we need evidence for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are uh, a larger number of studies that have measured um, potential benefits to the growth and survival of seedlings. And then there's this sort of separate literature uh, of experiments that have tried to measure resource transfer through these networks that has also found a really highly variable amount of transfer. Putting those two things together has been really rare in the same experiments. It has been done, uh, though. Francois Test, when working in Suzanne Samard's lab, did a couple of those experiments where they they did that in the same study. 
And in those studies, they did not find evidence that there was both strong resource transfer and benefits to uh, seedling performance in those experiments that were done. Yeah, this is, again, just really, really fascinating. Um, it sounds like this is one of those things. It's just such a difficult thing to study um, that it needs to be replicated again and again before we draw too many conclusions about it. And I might be mistaken, but uh, Justine, in your webinar, you mentioned that when you when you guys dug through all of these studies, you really only found, I think, one one that would definitively say uh, you could you could say there are no alternative routes for that nutrient yeah. transfer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and can you tell us a little more about it? Yeah, I'll, I'll see how much I can work from my memory here. So so this was a study um, investigating water transfer through common mycorrhizal networks. Um, I believe it was led by Jeff Warren. Am I right, Melanie and Jason? Yeah, Warren, okay. sounds right. Yep. Yeah, okay. And this was a really neat experiment in that, um, so they planted seedlings, pine seedlings, around uh, um, a tall pine, so a mature pine, and then they manipulated access to mycorrhizal networks in a really nifty way and that they use this air gap around the seedlings so a hyphae could cross the air gap and so um but they ruled out kind of bulk flow in soils of water by using this air gap and then so then they chopped down the mature tree and then they put a sleeve on the stump and then um added dyed water to it and so the dyed water then allowed you to track like where is this water ending up in the ecosystem of course they were interested like does it end up on these planted seedlings and on one seedling that had access to the mycorrhizal network that would have been formed with this mature tree um, the only way that that dyed water would have ended up on this colonized root tip was through a cmn like it's really hard to imagine any other way, but I want to stress it was like, it was just one seedling and it was actually just a single data point on that seedling. But we said that is the strongest evidence we have to date that resources, so in this case, water was moving through a common mycorrhizal network. It was very surprising. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's it. Um, and of course, you know, we could talk about some of the laboratory experiments, but you know, there's some problems with them as well. So I'm, you know, I'm just focusing on the field experiments here, but that's what it came down to. Yeah. And to go back to kind of what Jason was saying too, I mean, that doesn't even discuss how much was being transferred and how much it benefits versus, you know, exactly. might be outweighed by some of these other factors. So yeah. it really it's is. A, yeah. It's a proof of concept that it can happen, but it was a single data point. Yes, just one little root, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of wild. Um, so this kind of segues nicely into the the next and uh, final claim, um, which this one is really where I think a lot of the pop culture um, clinged to because it, it lends itself really nicely to um, sort of humanizing forests or anthropomorphizing, as we call it. Um, and this claim was that mature trees... Um, will preferentially pass resources to offspring through CMNs. Um, and so, yeah, this was the one that I think was mentioned in Ted Lasso. <laughs> Back to that one. And, and yeah, does anyone want to discuss like what you, what you found in that, Jason? Yeah, so in fact, we found the least evidence supporting 
this claim, uh, which surprised us. This was the claim, I think, where uh, we were hearing in the media and thinking, wow, are we missing something? And, and no, the answer is no, we weren't. It turns out that uh, uh, when we really dug in and tried to figure out what science was behind this claim, where was this coming from? We found one uh, peer-reviewed published study that addressed this phenomenon of signaling among trees through CMNs um, in response to insect damage. And that, that's the most common example site uh, mentioned in, these, in this narrative is trees are damaged by an enemy like insects and they can signal to each other to warn each other uh, of that insect damage so that other trees around them can upregulate their defenses uh, and better defend themselves against this sort of oncoming attack. And the one published study that we found addressing that question was a greenhouse study um, with pine and dug fir. And it's a nice experiment. They, in this experiment, they tested uh, they used this sort of mesh bag approach and um, and then manipulated damage on target seedlings uh, using either uh, uh, insects or clipping. And then in response in nearby seedlings that were either putatively connected through mycorrhizal networks, uh, only networks, both roots and mycorrhizal networks like we find in a real forest and completely cut off. They measured the uh, potential upregulation of defensive enzymes. And what they found, intriguingly, was that in the treatment with only mycorrhizal network connections and no root overlap between the adjacent seedlings, they found strong evidence for upregulation of those defensive enzymes when the target seedling was damaged, either by clipping or insects. But puzzlingly and intriguingly also, when... Uh, roots were overlapping as well between those adjacent seedlings, as you would see in a real forest, the effect went away. Uh, there was no uh, evidence for upregulation of defensive enzymes. Um, and that's, that's what they found. And we, we looked at this experiment really carefully because, uh, you know, what this implies is that in a real forest, you would not see this kind of signaling. If uh, you know, if we're basing it uh, all on this one study. Um, in addition, there was a greenhouse study that looked at kin and the effect of relatedness of, you know, genetic relatedness on this kind of resource transfer. And that's another common part of this narrative is that trees will preferentially signal uh, or pass resources to their, uh, their offspring or their kin uh, to help them. And this greenhouse study uh, is, again, a really nice experiment. But what they found was evidence for resource transfer that was preferential to some families of related seedlings between, uh, between seedlings to, you know, and preferentially between relate, some families of related seedlings. But the evidence in this experiment really pointed towards resource transfer through the soil, not through uh, mycorrhizal network connections. So, you know, those are the two published experiments that were mainly being referred to uh, with this narrative, as far as we could tell. Uh, also, the claim was relying apparently on some unpublished graduate theses, uh, from one particular laboratory. And when we looked at in carefully at those uh, graduate theses, which aren't published in journal articles yet, uh, the results 
really either did not support the, this claim or even ran counter to them. There, there was one study, uh, a really nice field study, uh, where uh, next to large trees, seedlings were planted that were either genetically related to that tree or were not. And then uh, potential access to mycorrhizal network connections were manipulated in the soil. And what was found was that the trend was that there was a difference between kin and non-kin in their survival. But the kin, the genetically related seedlings next to, next to the, the big trees that were their, uh, their parent trees, actually survived worse than the unrelated seedlings. And uh, if anything, the mycorrhizal network connections were seemed to be exacerbating that effect, although they had no significant statistical effect on uh, on any of it. So the more we dug in, the more we found that there was just nothing here to support, you know, the narrative that in forests, trees are helping each other uh, by signaling uh, to warn of insect damage or preferentially to their kin. Through I would say that mycorrhizal networks. <laughs> through through common mycorrhizal networks. That's right. And that's what the narrative has been about, is that this is happening through common mycorrhizal networks. So, you know, that's what we were looking for. And and there's just no published evidence for that. Um, there's one study, I should say also that all of these experiments are measuring responses of seedlings. And and you know, one thing we tried to emphasize is that we just can't extrapolate the responses of seedlings to adult trees in a forest. Uh, even if we found strong evidence with seedlings, we would still need to ask the question, you know, do adult trees respond the same way? And, you know, there are some nice studies with adult trees. There's one uh, study with adult trees looking at carbon transfer, uh, but they didn't control in that study for, you know, the soil pathway versus the common mycorrhizal network pathway. So we can't really conclude anything about mycorrhizal networks there. And now, there's a, a, a nice study that Justine was involved in that she could tell you about that involves looking at correlations between tree growth and various properties of mycorrhizal networks in soils. And it's, uh, there are some really intriguing conclusions from that study, uh, but we have to remember that it's, it's correlative and um, there are alternative explanations there as well. You know, in addition to there just not really being scientific support for these claims of communication and preferential treatment of offspring, one of the things I've been particularly wary of is the anthropomorphizing of these claims with a focus on intentionality. So what's intentional communication versus simply stimulus and response? So if I see a flash of lightning, I instinctively head for cover. That doesn't mean that the sky is trying to communicate with me or warn me. I'm just responding to a stimulus. And you know, similarly, is there a case of a parent nurturing offspring or a smaller suppressed tree mooching off of a big tree and potentially causing stress? And you know, being the parent of a teenager, there's a fine line between nurturing your young and being parasitized. But do you think that this anthropomorphizing, which is really the focus, it seems, of some of these popular press books, is at all appropriate. I, I can start with this. Um, so first of all, I would say that um, sort of backing up in that in, you know, normal kind of language, we use a lot of metaphors. And 
Uh, so anthropomorphizing is one type of metaphor, uh, but there's really no way to get around communicating without metaphors. And we use metaphors in science all the time. When you study little tiny things, when you study like really giant things, we often use metaphors because we don't have the same, you know, we need a reference point. And these things are, they operate at different scales than the human scale. So I don't think we would argue against the use of metaphor. And we often, when, when we're in science, we're using metaphors because we also don't understand the system that well. And I might argue that the more we start to understand the system, the less we need to rely on metaphors because now we have precise knowledge to and vocabulary to describe um, what that phenomena is. So anthropomorphizing is a type of metaphor. Um, and I think that it's done uh, is to you know generate that emotional connection with the study system, and so you know it, it can be problematic in that it blinds us to how the system just is, and and of course that's really difficult. We're humans, and we have certain sensories, and so we use those to understand, say, the forest, and we're always kind of bound by that. But I think that the more that we can back up and just try to treat the system and observe it for what it is, we will probably be ahead. And, and I think that there probably are good examples of anthropomorphizing has, has put us in the wrong direction in terms of understanding a system. Trees and fungi are trees and fungi. They're not people. We don't need to make them into people to understand them better. Um, but, you know, this obviously has been used as this, you know, sort of rhetorical force to convince and persuade people to care about trees and fungi in a way that, yeah, is very, um, it resonates with our emotions. And who, I mean, who would want to go out and kill the family of the trees or, or whatever else, right? It, it makes it so it's like really hard to, to think about the forest in any other way. Um, but in my opinion, yeah, it's probably done more damage than good in this situation and, and probably something we want to reconsider and, and walk back. I agree with all of that. Um, I wanted to add that it's been interesting in uh, sort of fielding responses to our article to see that a lot of the pushback and discussion has been about anthropomorphization of trees. And some, uh, you know, some scientists have argued that, you know, we, we really need to be doing this anthropomorphizing of trees to help people connect and that the good that's being done with that anthropomorphizing is worth it. it. You know, whatever the cost, it's worth it because people are falling in love with forests and, and they pushed back against our paper because of that. And it's been difficult to get the message across that our paper wasn't about that. This is something we get asked about uh, because it's a, it's obviously related and it's used in these claims in the media. But our paper was analyzing the science behind the claims. We, we didn't uh, talk about the pros and cons or the evidence for anthropomorphization in our scientific paper. Uh, you know, that's not what that analysis was about. Uh, some scientists and members of the public have really uh, focused on the anthropomorphization and and are and sort of ignored the scientific aspect of our paper and simply wanted to focus on 
anthropomorphization and, and really have looked at comments we've made in interviews uh, like this one uh, and argued more with those than any of the science in the actual paper. That's a great point, Jason. Um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, you've made some really good points about the importance of metaphors and science communication and how anthropomorphizing is a form of that. Uh, Justine, you mentioned this uh, idea that people react emotionally and think, well, we don't want to kill a family of trees and so forth. One of the things that Patrick and I are seeing working with forest landowners is people having that sort of attitude coming off of these claims, and that's causing them to make a further jump to certain management implications that are going to be counterproductive towards the typical landowner goals of a healthy, resilient forest. For instance, I've had conversations with landowners who are reluctant to thin overstocked stands because they feel that it's going to disrupt the common mycorrhizal network or somehow be unethical to remove trees from a tree's family. And similarly, I've had conversations with landowners who have disease pockets that are falling apart from, say, root disease. And normally we would advise, you know, you can excise that area and replant to a resistant species, but people are very reluctant to touch it at all, even though the disease is spreading because of their concerns over what are the implications for the common mycorrhizal network. So my question then is, how do we effectively use metaphors and anthropomorphizing without as much danger of people taking the metaphor too far and then coming to some conclusions and management decisions that are counterproductive. Justine, do you want to handle that one? <laughs> <laughs> that's a really, that's a really difficult question. Um, okay. I guess my first thought is um, me personally, I would try to walk back that anthropomorphism. That's I, um, Metaphors are one thing, like all the time that we're speaking, we're, we're speaking in metaphors. There's, there's just no way around that. Um, you know, even the most basic thing, like um, your idea is really clear to me that that is using a metaphor in terms of like, you know, this idea of clear and, and what it signifies. So, so there's really no getting around using metaphors. And I, I don't think we should bother with that. But the anthropomorphization of trees and forests, I, I do think it would be helpful to walk that back in this instance. And what I would probably stress, and what I do stress when I'm talking to people, is that there is there is really, we don't have evidence for how these common mycorrhizal networks um, function in forests. We, we are just a long ways from basing forest management on the function and structure of common mycorrhizal networks. It's not to say they're not important, but we we just, we don't have the evidence to be basing forest management on that. But there is lots of evidence on managing the forest on in terms of what we do know. I mean, we do know that it's a balance of competition and facilitation and all these kinds of different interactions that will give rise to the forest dynamics that we see. There is lots and lots of research on that. and. That, I think, is, you know, this idea of we're using a weight of evidence and 
why that's important to managing forests. Um, and then also emphasizing, you know, or, or I don't know, I mean, I don't like to get aggressive in these kinds of arguments and really challenging. I do try to just meet people where they at, where they're at. But often, you know, I am curious of just like, so where are you getting your information? Like what's, you know, what what's underlying your decision? Can we can we walk through this to get a sense of like, yeah, where is this coming from? And like, you know, and it just unfortunately the idea um, or recognition that some of these nonfiction books, um, you know, they're called nonfiction, but they are like popular science. And I don't think we should be using those books to be informing forest management we still need to go carefully back to the scientific literature to see like, what is the evidence for this? And then, you know, and it's important to be relying on experts to kind of help us through this. So I guess that's sort of what I think about it. It sounds like a cautionary tale for science communication in general and where we get our information and the difference between a popular press book that's not peer reviewed versus peer-reviewed scientific journal articles, which even in this discussion, we've identified even some problems with published studies uh, in that regard. You look back and critique some of your own work, but what should the general public as consumers of information take away from all of this? Because we can't expect the general public to be doing a literature search on these topics. And I think of well, I understand forestry, but what other topics you know, are out there that I'm just accepting claims from popular press that really aren't at all supported by research and that you know, researchers in those fields are you know, banging their heads mm-hmm. against their desks about these claims. So what's, what's the general public to do? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of unsettling, isn't it? <laughs> The other thing we didn't talk about in the paper is our citation analysis, where, you know, we show that there are problems with how scientists are citing the older work in that there's this, this um, positive bias in terms of uh, reporting positive effects on CMNs on seedlings or ignoring confounding effects and things like that. So, so I think we want to stress, this is not a problem just in the public, it's also a problem in the scientific literature and among scientists right now too. So yeah, the whole thing is kind of unsettling. Um, so I, I guess, and Jason and Melanie can add in what they think, but I think as scientists, we need to work on uh, tamping down the hype. And there is a lot of pressure to be doing that for various reasons. We're trying to get grants, we're trying to get, you know, our papers out there, we're trying to get recognition and, you know, careers, whatever else. And so there's a lot of pressure on us to be hyping results over promising things like that. And it's really, really not good for science. And I am very concerned that it's going to erode the credibility of science if we don't figure out how to stop this. So so the so the responsibility does not just rely, it doesn't just lie in the public it definitely relies or it lies on our shoulders as well. For the public, I think, you know, because most of their contact or interaction with these ideas are going to be through the media, are going to be through newspapers. And and Melanie had a really nice suggestion to journalists. And, and Melanie, tell me if I get this wrong, but to ask two questions out of every scientist when they're interviewing them about their new studies or whatever else. 
And actually, Melanie, I'll just turn it over to you because you you summarized it really nicely in that one article you you led. Right. Okay. Thanks, Justine. Well, the um, the one is to for journalists. You know, journalists need to force scientists to be honest. And we do, and, and, and I don't mean that scientists are being dishonest, but we do get carried away with ideas, just the, an excitement, the same as everybody. So the one question I thought would be good for a journalist to ask is, what are other alternative explanations for your data? for your results. And because there are always alternative explanations, and that was a big part of our, our paper. And so it would really force journalists to, um, or force the scientists to really come, um, you know, think seriously about that. And um, I'm sorry about this, but my mind is drawing a blank on the other the other question. I, I, I think it was the second question was something to the effect are there other studies that support your conclusions or something like that, wasn't it? So this idea of, are there other things, are there, are there alternative explanations to your results and kind of how well supported are these results in the context of your field? And, and of course, you know, when it's just like, this is the first study, these are, you know, no one else has demonstrated this, then that's, you know, it's exciting, but it's a little bit of a red flag as well in that, okay, this is promising. These results are promising, but we would probably want to see this experiment or study replicated in different forests, different systems under different conditions before we uh, generalize or now put this into forest management. Yeah, I would just add that um, I think that there's some amount of responsibility at all uh, parts of at all levels of this uh, interaction. So, you know, the public, I would really encouraged to try to look at um, media that they're consuming with a critical eye and and look for when it has to do with science look for any evidence that that the presentation has, is making an attempt to be balanced to present some amount of uncertainty or uh, you know the evolution of the field some amount of uh, information about how good is the evidence you know and if, if there's none of that it, it really, you know, I would look at it more skeptically. Um, but for scientists and journalists, I, you know, I think we really need to to work together to try to present uh, scientific results in a way that is exciting and intriguing to the public, but also in a way that that doesn't gloss over the realities of science. The reality that there's variability in outcomes. There's disagreement among scientists. There's there's inevitably an evolution over time of the the strength of evidence for particular ideas, and we need to we need to show the public what science really looks like, but also uh, tell them about what we really do know and what's really exciting, uh, and and not hold back when we do have strong conclusions uh, to base those kinds of narratives on. Well, and the, the final thing that I'll add is that the public, I'm sure, is aware that scientific ideas change over time as new knowledge is gained. And we see that in, in lots of other fields. And so all that we were really doing in our paper was saying, okay, 
this is uh, this excitement of about common mycorrhizal networks has been out there for about 25 years. Let's step back, look at all of the studies that have been done, and you know, including the more recent ones, and see if there's still if there is any evidence for this or not. And so, what what we were doing was really just something that happens naturally in all scientific fields, where you have to change your be willing to address your your pet theories in the light of new findings in the literature. And so if the public can be aware of that as well, that scientific ideas evolve over time. Sounds like there may also be a bit of a problem with confirmation bias in all of this. So if you believe that it's always bad to cut a tree, then you kind of latch on to some of these claims as, aha, this, this proves what I believe. Yeah, I think that that happens amongst all of us. It's it's absolutely natural. And um, as Jason talked about earlier, there are studies that show that, for example, little seedlings grow better when they're potentially connected to a mycorrhizal network. So you could cite those studies or you could focus on those studies and say, yes, there's evidence for that. But it's only about 20% and 80% are showing something else. And so, um, you know, we, we have to be really wary just either as being a member of the public or even amongst scientists. The tendency is to look for studies that support the statements that we want to make. And that's what we cite. And we're not always as, as rigorous as we should be about acknowledging that there are other studies that have found opposite, the opposite effect. Um, well, I'm really enjoying where this conversation is going because I like I like what you mentioned, Kevin. You know, we spend and all of us here spend all of our time talking talking and thinking about trees, and I'm wondering what is my uh, you know wood wide web? What do I believe <laughs> that I read in a tagline that I have not investigated? And I think it's just really important. Um, that we get this message out that, uh, you know, you need to be consuming with a critical eye, as Jason said. Um, and to some degree, you know, that's also uh, our roles as well, especially, you know, Kevin and I, you know, our whole job is to deliver information to forest owners and forestry professionals. And that's exactly what we're doing with this podcast. And I think we're all doing a really great job, but we need to keep up the good work. Um, and the consumers also need to have that critique as well. And in that mind, in that vein, I think it is worth clarifying as well um, the funding that went into this paper, because that is something that everyone wonders when a paper comes out is, was there any, uh, you know, external funding that might have influenced? And I'm hopefully one of you can confirm, um, unless I'm mistaken, there was no external funding for this paper. Yeah, that's correct. There was no external funding. Um we were paid by our respective salaries from our from our universities, but this is really something we tackled kind of on the the side of our desks. So yeah, no no external funding. Yeah, and I think that's really important for a study like this. That's just so um, yeah, it's really kind of grasped the culture. Um, so you know we've we've really covered a lot, and I want to reiterate too that you know the problem isn't necessarily that these studies that exist 
have fallen short. Um, you know, this is a really normal part of the scientific process. You have new ideas, you experiment, you revise, um, you know, you, you replicate. And the scientific community usually doesn't say that they believe something until the science has been replicated many, many, many times through. And we're still very early in that process. So knowing that now, um, I wonder, do you, um, what do you see as the path forward? Like, what are the research priorities? Where should we be looking next? Yeah, well, so um, first of all, we are hopeful that our paper does not put like a chill <laughs> on common mycorrhizal network research. That that actually was not our intent at all. Um, I think the three of us are really optimistic and excited about the next generation of experiments. And and as you mentioned, we recognize those experiments. I mean, most of them, they were the best we could do at the time. And but of course, like any field, our knowledge matures. Our approaches to these questions, they change as we learn more. So, you know, it is a natural evolution in any field that things change, experiments change, what we thought was, we no longer believe in and that kind of stuff. So, so I'm, yeah, very excited about the next generation of experiments. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing researchers uh, tackling, you know, producing more of these maps. And, you know, at a very basic level, we still don't understand what these networks look like. We call them, you know, the wood wide web. And it, you know, that brings a certain analogy into your mind of like, yeah, this like underground network, but maybe it's more like local area networks, right? Maybe it's not a wood wide web. And so it's trying to figure out how to uh, discover what these things look like, but allowing, I think, for more complexity than just like, you know, one fungus connecting all the trees. Like, I, I think most of us would agree that it's probably not like that. Um, you know, and we've given suggestions on what the future experiments, uh, how they might tackle some of these questions. Um, I think another thing I would be really interested in is, you know, not, not just focusing on the role of common mycorrhizal networks in isolation of all the other ecology going on in the forest. And some of the earlier studies did tackle this, like what was the relative importance of common mycorrhizal networks versus seedling genetics versus uh, which region the seedlings were planted in, like ranking those importance, those, the importance of those factors, I think will be a really critical next step in moving ahead in the research. I think it's also good to note that your paper doesn't slam the door on these ideas of common mycorrhizal networks, resource transfer, and so forth. You're not saying that this stuff doesn't exist or doesn't happen, but it sounds like more that there just isn't enough evidence yet. Is, yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's just the story is way ahead of the science. And <laughs> I, think, I think that's it. It's not that we're saying that common mycorrhizal networks don't exist. We're not saying that resource transfer is not possible. We're not saying any of that or that, you know, but some of these claims, like, for example, the alarm calls through the forest through common mycorrhizal networks, it's never been tested in a forest. We have no idea if this actually happens. So that's kind of where we're at. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm going to also let Jason and Melanie add in onto that. 
I, I was just going to add um, that that's absolutely true. Um, I would argue, except for the part about the um, the seedling responses, um, in that there's we have quite a few studies already, and it shows, as as Jason mentioned, just this really variable response. And so I think the step forward there is to try to figure out why the responses are so variable. So it, with some of the claims, there's just very little to go on, and we just need a lot more research. And uh, with, with the uh, resource transfer and the seedling responses, we need to figure out why are the responses so variable and sometimes negative. Yep, exactly. 100%, Melanie. Yeah, and I and I want to add to that too. I mean, that general sentiment that um, you know we've yeah we're having a conversation kind of about pumping the brakes, but uh, on some of the conclusions we're drawing. But I know Kevin and I have had a lot of conversations about just how fascinating this research is, and is it a lot of way sort of at the forefront uh, of forestry right now, and it is something that we should be investing in, and are all very excited to learn about. Um, so we should definitely be investing in this and trying to learn more. But it is also at the same time very important to know where we're at currently with the research. Um, so and, and I add too that like a lot of the landowners that, you know, Kevin mentioned, although there's some downsides maybe to the anthropomorphizing and um, and, you know, drawing these conclusions, they are among the most passionate when it comes to uh, love for their forest and wanting to keep it healthy, keep it resilient. So there's really good motivation there. And we just got to seize that and inform it. And I'm really glad that we had all of you here to help us do that. So this has definitely been one of our longer episodes, but I, you know, given the content and the topic and just how important it is, I don't think any of our listeners will complain, but I do want to hand it back to you guys. If you have any other final comments before we close out. Uh, no final comments for me, just to say um, thanks so much for having us on the show. And and definitely, we do not want to kill any enthusiasm forest owners have for their forests. Um, yeah, right. that that's really important. And um, of course, we always welcome that. But yeah, it's just maybe guiding the enthusiasm, enthusiasm a little bit. Right. <laughs> well, and I think you, you touched on this in your wrap up that... What has come out of this is just the importance of fungi in forests in general. And so you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, we're, we're really excited that, that people understand that forests are not just trees and squirrels and that kind of thing. There's this fascinating microbial um, activity that's going on below ground. It is just that we need to learn a lot more about it. So thanks very much for your, your interest in our paper and giving us a chance to talk about it. Just to piggyback on what Melanie was saying, yeah, there there is so much uh, going on in forests that is fascinating and supported by strong science. Uh, the importance of mycorrhizal fungi for trees is really clear. And mycorrhizal fungi are, are making mushrooms. Many of the more uh, 
prominent edible mushrooms in forests are from these fungi. Uh, truffles grow from these fungi and are dispersed by squirrels. Uh, we have these fascinating interactions with non-photosynthetic plants that are connected through mycorrhizal fungi to trees. There's a lot going on that is really fascinating about forests, and we do need to take it into account when thinking about managing forests. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today. Thanks again. I think this line of research also really highlights how much we don't know, how much there is yet to discover. And to me, that's really exciting to think that there are whole new avenues that haven't been explored yet and new things to discover. So I'm really excited to see where the next generation of research on this topic goes. All the more reason to have the three of you back here on the podcast uh, in the future. All right. Well, I am going to call it at that. Thank you all for listening. As always, um, check out our website, forestry.wsu.edu, to learn about any forestry educational events happening in your area and any of our other programs and resources we have are on there. So thank you, and we will see you next month. Mm -hmm.